Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm starting now in Matthew 19, going through about the first 15 verses. This is Jesus' farewell to his ministry in Galilee. He's heading down to Jerusalem in order to be crucified. Verse 1 in Matthew 19, verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had finished this instruction, what instruction? Well, he had just finished talking about church discipline and forgiving one's brothers 70 times, seven times. This was in Capernaum after they had come back from the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus had finished that instruction, he departed from Galilee and went to the region of Judea across the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Now, across the Jordan, over to the east side in the present-day country of Jordan, in the Roman province of Perea over there is where he probably went. Now, Adam Clark disagrees, translates the preposition across as differently, by the side of Jordan, he says, so... He says he didn't go over. doesn't really matter. The point is he went down into the area of Judea. Now, Jesus did a lot of ministry on this side of the Jordan before he crossed over, over if indeed he did cross over. Here's a quote from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Though might, one might conclude from our evangelists that our Lord went straight from the one region to the other, we know from the other Gospels that a considerable time elapsed between the departure from the one that's Galilee, and their arrival at the other, Judea, during which many of the most important events in our Lord's public life occurred. Probably a large part of what is recorded in Luke 9:51, all the way to Luke 18:15, and a part and part of John 7 verses 2 through 11, chapter 11:54. That's the course of the synoptic problem. People have lots and lots of scholarly disputes on how to harmonize the chronology, and I don't really care about getting into all that, but there's a lot of the stuff we're skipping here. I think there's no question. But at any rate, how did he go? He probably went south from Capernaum. The NIV, my NIV study Bible says he went south from Capernaum over the hills of Samaria into Judea, and then he went east over the Jordan into Perea. But at any rate, this is a solemn time. He's never going to see his hometown again, Capernaum. I say his hometown is is basically where he's lived during his ministry up there for about three years or so. He's leaving it forever. Luke 9.51, the parallel passage in Luke 9.51 says this, When the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. There's a little a mention there of his impending crucifixion. Matthew and Mark don't have that little point. Now the crowds were still coming to him as we see in this verse. Here's some of the possible motives. Some came to be instructed, some came to be healed. Some came through curiosity, and some came to ensnare him. Some who came to be instructed might have also come to be healed also. It's hard to say. There's a lot of reasons why they were coming, but they were coming. I imagine mostly to be instructed and to be healed. Now, the crowds always included those who wanted to trip him up. Matthew 19.3 shows this. Some Pharisees approached him to test him. And again, that word test can mean have a positive meaning, like your algebra teacher gives you a test and expects you to pass it so you'll be better at algebra. But sometimes it means to destroy you, test you, to try you, to destroy you, to tempt you. For example, what the devil tried to do with Jesus in the wilderness. This is what the Pharisees are trying to do. They're trying to destroy Jesus. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Now, this was a delicate question to be asking now. Remember, they're in Perea. Perea is one of the two dominions of Herod Antipas the son of Herod the Great, the governor, the Roman governor there in Galilee and Perea. And if you recall, Herod Antipas had divorced his wife, the wife of the daughter of a king of, uh, of Nabatea down in the south of Israel. He had put away that wife and married Herodias, who was the former wife of his half-brother Herod Philip I. And you know the story. 
Herodias's daughter Salome did a sexy dance. Herod Antipas said, whatever you want, Salome, I'll give it to you. At Herodias's bequest, request, Salome said, give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. Now, so this was a sensitive subject, and Herod Antipas had already killed John the Baptist. So this is why the Pharisees were testing Jesus. They were expecting him to come around and say, oh, no, you shouldn't divorce somebody, and thereby making him an outlaw in the eyes of Herod Antipas. And the Pharisees may have hoped Antipas would go and, and arrest Jesus just like he had seized John the Baptist. Now, this little phrase, on any grounds, is not in the parallel passage at Mark 10:2. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Why did Matthew add it? Probably because he was writing to Jews and he knew that, or the Pharisees knew. Why did the Pharisees? Matthew added the phrase because it would have significance for a Jewish audience. And the Pharisees said that phrase on any grounds because they knew there was a controversy going between the two main schools of the Pharisees, Shammai and Hillel. Now, this ha the controversy was over divorce, and it arose from Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, which says this, If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something improper about her, that's the Holman Christian Study Bible translation, something improper in the woman, indecent is the NIV, if he finds something improper about her, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. If after leaving his house she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the second man hates her and writes her a divorce certificate, hands it to her, and sends her away from his house, or if he dies, the first husband who sent her away may not marry her again after she has been defiled, because that would be detestable to the Lord. You, may not, you must not bring guilt on the land your Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Or the purpose of the divorce of, of the prohibition against remarriage was to keep men from putting away their wives on stupid for stupid reasons because she burnt the toast and they send her away and then they say, Ooh, gee, I want her back and that would create havoc in the domestic relations of Israel and so the man could not do that. If he's going to divorce her, he's got to be certain he wants to divorce her and he's got to give her a divorce certificate to protect her status, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But the point is, right now, let's go going back to this controversy between the schools of Shammai and Hillel, the two Pharisaic schools. They argued over what that something improper was. Now, Hillel was the liberal school. They said something improper, the indecent thing could be, she didn't put enough sugar in the coffee. She burnt the toast. She burps too much. You know, the ridiculous, stupid things. And the liberal school of Hillel said, let, him go, let her go. You know, it's all right to divorce a wife like that. But Shammai... The strict school said, no, she's got to do something sexually improper, sexually immoral. Now, what was the object of the Pharisees? If, if it indeed was more than just getting Herod Antipas to arrest Jesus for condemning Herod Antipas's divorce, perhaps they had further reasons to test Jesus to get him involved in a controversy between the two schools of the Pharisees. If Jesus took the side of Hillel, he would make the followers of Shemai angry, and all the women would be angry with him because Hillel didn't protect women and allowed them to be divorced for frivolous reasons. If, on the other hand, Jesus took the side of Shammai, he would make the followers of Hillel angry, and all the men would be angry with them because they couldn't put their wives away for easy reasons. On the other hand, if he denied the right of divorce altogether with no exceptions, everybody would denounce him as an enemy of Moses because Moses had actually allowed divorce in some circumstances, and then he would be standing up against the great Jewish lawgiver Moses. So this was a good trap, and of course... Jesus was never trapped. He always got out of the trap. And in fact, Jesus was going to end up coming down on the side of Shammai, and he was going to overrule Moses' ruling on divorce, but they still didn't get him. 
Going to verse 4 and 5 in Matthew 19, this is Jesus' Jesus's response. Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And what Jesus is doing is, he's, as, as we'll see here, he is he is pointing out that Moses had to deal with a corrupt nation. He had to make concessions to reality. But at the beginning, those conditions didn't exist. Adam and Eve were not in a nation of unbelieving Jews who had to be regulated and whose standards were very, very low. And plus, Jesus is the new lawgiver, and he's talking to Christians now. He's setting up the kingdom of heaven. And in the kingdom of heaven... Christians will have the Holy Spirit and they will have higher standards and they will stay married to their wives and husbands for, the, for their whole lives, not until the wife burns the toast. So this is where he's going. So he goes back to the beginning, Adam and Eve, and he quotes Genesis, Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image. He created them in the image of God. He created them male and female. And in verse two, chapter 2, verse 24, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Genesis 2:23 is the verse right before the verse 24, which I just read. So let's read that. And the man said, that's Adam, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. All right, so... The one flesh is what Jesus is emphasizing here. God created Adam and Eve, male and female, and made them one flesh. Two different kinds of flesh become one kind of flesh. And what he's getting, when he's, what he's emphasizing is, is one flesh is not supposed to be divided into two fleshes. In other words, God doesn't like divorce. That's where he's going with it. Now we have a little harmonization problem here. There's a question of who said this, that when a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, they become one flesh. Who said that? Well, Jesus says in chapter Matthew 19, verse 5, For he also said, meaning God, also said that a father and mother be joined to his wife, the two will become one flesh. But if you go back and read in Genesis, it, it could sound like Adam said it. Because in Genesis 2, verse 23, it says, And the man said, so in Genesis 2, verse 23, The man said, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and when a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, they become one flesh. So the man says the man and the woman one flesh. Adam says it in Genesis, and in Matthew, Jesus says God says it. Well, this is actually not difficult. If you go back and look, for example, in the ESV, the ESV has in indentation what God said and of what Adam said, and then it switches back to the regular text for what God said. So verse 23 is what Adam said, and the man said, Adam said, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And then verse 24 goes back to the margin, which means it's back to Moses, which means it's back to God speaking. This is why a man leaves his mother, father, mother, and bonds with his wife, and they become more flesh. So it was God who said that, not just Adam. Now this idea of one flesh, Adam Clark's got a great description of that. Not only meaning that they should be considered as one body, but also as two souls in one body with a complete union of interest and an indissoluble, indissoluble partnership of life and fortune comfort and support, desires and inclinations, joys and sorrows. Pretty good description of marriage. It's not just the physical. Matthew 19, verse 6. So they are no longer two, Jesus continues, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, man must not separate. Now, here's an example of 
who the man might be who must not separate, who must not dissolve marriages. The husband shouldn't separate them. The government shouldn't do it. And Moses himself shouldn't do it. Now, of course, Moses did allow divorce. And here Jesus says, nope, man shouldn't separate man and woman. So he set himself up against Moses here in front of Pharisees. And that creates an interesting potential conflict here. Let's go back to the idea about man should not separate. What about governments who separate non-Christians for less than scriptural reasons? We, we know that divorces allow for sexual immorality, as, we get, as we're getting ready to see. But courts, secular courts, allow divorce for one-year separation, two-year separation, mental cruelty, and all these other uh, ideas. What about that? Well, after having looked at this, divorce is a very, very complicated situation. I used to practice law and actually handle divorce cases with non-Christians. And I and I would have to I would wrestle with this in my mind, and I finally came to the conclusions. Look, Jesus has given the rules for divorce for Christians. He's not given it for non-Christians. And if a secular government allows divorce for less than scriptural reasons, Christians ought not to pay attention to that. They ought to stay married unless the other party commits adultery or if an unbelieving partner abandons the marriage. I mean, just the two scriptural reasons. But if for the other reasons, they sh they might have a legal right to divorce, but they don't have a scriptural right to divorce. And divorce is completely ignored. The Bible, like most of Christians, pay no attention to the Bible, create all kinds of problems by going out and doing all kinds of stupid things, sexually and maritally. But for the Christian who wants to obey God, it's very, you, you don't do it. You don't divorce except for those two reasons. But that doesn't mean that we should get all been out of shape when the state allows non-Christians to get divorced for less than scriptural reasons because they ain't operating on the higher level that Jesus is operating. Just like Moses wasn't operating on the higher level that Jesus is operating. I mean, Moses, he had a bunch of people who didn't believe in God. Most of Israel was not believers. I, if you're going to start saying that the highest standard is what a society will allow, and you go back to Moses for that, well, look, Moses had to allow polygamy. That wasn't God's plan. He had to allow slavery or indentured servitude, I guess you might call it. He had to he had to allow that. There's a lot of stuff he had to allow. He was running basically a military government, mar marching through the wilderness. Uh, he had stone rebellious kids, stoning homosexuals, anything that would destroy the nation. Uh, uh, idolaters were destroyed. Anything that would destroy Israel as a functioning unit. Moses took care of it, but that's not how we live today in the kingdom of God. Those people weren't believers. They didn't have the Holy Spirit. We Christians do. And if we obey the scriptures and obey the Holy Spirit, then our lawgiver, can Jesus, can demand of us higher moral action. Now, when Jesus says, therefore, God is joined together, the word is actually yoked. If you think about a yoke that you put over two oxen, pretend the two oxen are like a husband and wife, they pull together. That yoke spreads out the the labor, the forces, so that the forces are concentrated in one spot to pull the load. But if you got one oxen that wants to go to the left and one oxen that wants to go to the right, and you don't have a yoke to yoke them together, then they accomplish nothing. And that's what happens when a man and a woman start going off in different directions. And that's why marriage is such an important thing and why people need to legally get married. It's interesting to me. People live together for years. I, it was a movie star, and I can't remember which one it was. I think it was, well, anyway, it was some movie star. She wrote an article and said, I felt different. And she'd been living together with the same man for 10 years, and she got married. And she said, it's just different. It's just different the next day when you're married. It is different. It's a lot different than legal, than shacking up with somebody in a house. Because you're pulling together, and society recognizes that you're pulling together, and you're pulling together, and you recognize it, and you're not getting out of it easy because it's hard to get out of a yoke. 
And by golly, we got to make this thing work, and we got to make sacrifices, and we can't be selfish. Matthew 19, 7. Why then, they, the Pharisees, asked him, Jesus, did Moses command us to give divorce papers and to send her away? Now they're bringing up the conflict with Moses. This, of course, is referring to Deuteronomy 24.1, which says this, If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something improper about her, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. So Moses did allow divorce, and Jesus is saying, Nope, we're not going to do that. Matthew 19.8-9 He, Jesus, told them, the Pharisees, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. In other words, it was a concession to the hardness of their hearts. But it was not like that from the beginning. In other words, in God's original design, divorce was not contemplated. And I tell you, whoever divorces his wife, except for exceptional immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Now this you there, he says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wife. He's talking about the Jews, because this is the Mosaic law for the Jews. He says it was not that, that from the beginning... I would assume Adam and Eve, but even John Gill even mentions the patriarchs. From the beginning, the patriarchs didn't put away their wives. Here's a quote from Gill. This was not the declared will of God at first, nor was it ever done by any good man before the time of Moses. We never read that Adam or Seth or Nor or Abraham put away their wives upon any consideration, though in the latter there might have been some appearance of reason for doing so on account of sterility. But this he did not, nor Isaac, nor Jacob, nor any of the patriarchs. John Gill said that, but I, I question, what about Hagar? Didn't he put her away? Yes, he did. So with that exception, I guess, generally the patriarchs didn't practice divorce, and certainly Adam and Eve didn't. Now, if Moses had not permitted divorce because of the hardness of their hearts, women would have been subject to much cruelty by unloving husbands, so says Adam Clark. Unloving husbands, for example, could take mistresses into the home. He can't divorce the wife. Well, I'll just ignore the wife and bring me a, a honey babe into the home and let her set up house with my wife. Now notice here you could say, well, Moses had to loosen up the laws of divorce to, be, to protect wives who would have been treated terribly in an unloving home when the husband was not allowed to divorce. She needed to be set free. Well, you could make the same argument against Jesus. He said you, you can't divorce except under extreme circumstances but there's a difference moses is not operating under the higher law of christ moses was not operating with people in the church he was operating with unbelieving jews most of whom as the history of the exodus has proved all you got to do is go read it most of whom did not believe in god even didn't listen to him didn't obey him and so forth so Moses had a harder situation, so he had to make more concessions to the hardness of their heart. Jesus didn't have to make as many concessions because of the softness of Christians' hearts who are controlled by the Holy Spirit. Christians are supposed to adjust and work out differences. They're not supposed to go out and take lovers. But in Moses' time, that's exactly what would have happened. So Moses permitted it because of the hardness of their heart. Now, permit does not mean approve of it. He permitted divorce to prevent greater evils, one of the evils which I just mentioned. Women getting caught in a household with an unloving husband, and the unloving husband is abusing her and ignoring her and not supporting her and bringing in mistresses in the house and that kind of thing. Now let's ask the question, what would have happened if there had been no divorce certificates? What's the purpose of that divorce certificate that Moses required? A put-away wife would have no status without a divorce certificate. Some might consider her already married. Thus, she would have no hope to remarry. 
a, a suitor might come and say, well, I'd like to marry you, but it looks to me like you're married to your old wife. What's the legalities of the situation? Some might, not knowing of the earlier husband, might say, well, you're single, but you're not a virgin. Apparently, you've had a kid or... I don't know how you find out she was not a virgin. Well, maybe she, he'd marry her and then find out after she got married, after they got married, didn't have the blood stain on the bedclothes. And oh my gosh, she's not a virgin, and yet I thought she was single. And then of course, in that society, caused all kind of problems. So the divorce certificate was very necessary. It protected the wife, and also the pro- the prohibition against the husband remarrying after he's put the wife away. That also protected the wife to protect her from rash actions by a husband who temporarily lost his temper. So Moses was fine for his time, but Jesus is talking about a new law for a new kingdom, the new Israel. That sounds like new covenant theology, which it is. It's not reformed theology. Covenant theology might not like what I just said, but under new covenant theology, that's it works pretty good. Now, later on in verse 8, we see that Jesus told them, or excuse me, in verse 8, Jesus told them, we look to a parallel passage and we see that that's, Jesus took the disciples away from the Pharisees back into the house, Mark 10.10. 10. Now in the house, the disciples questioned him again about this matter. Now, notice that Jesus had already said this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5:32. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So this has already been taught before. And let's look here. How does it cause a woman to commit adultery who gets divorced with one of these easy divorces? Well... Let's say that she's divorced because she burnt the toast. Well, that's not a real divorce. That's a that's a nothing divorce. And so then she goes out and marries another man. She's still married to her first husband. So if she has sex with the second man, that means she's committed adultery. Now, of course, this is under the pharisaical situation that existed in Jesus' time. I'm not talking about in Moses' time. Because in that case, you wouldn't blame the woman for adultery. Now, notice that Jesus does make an exception to when for a divorce. You can't get divorced, Jesus said, except for one case, sexual immorality. Now, what does sexual immorality mean? It doesn't just mean adultery. It means anything that's sexually immoral. It can be pornography. It could be homosexuality. It could be bestiality, anything like that. Incest. I remember one time a guy who was not committing adultery, a Christian guy with a Christian wife, people I knew, and the question was, well, he was watching pornography, and the wife got fed up with it, and he, she wanted to divorce him. And I'm thinking, well, well, that's not adultery. And a friend of mine pointed out that porneia, the Greek word there, doesn't just mean adultery. It means sexual immorality, and pornography is sexual immorality. She had every, she had good grounds to divorce the person. Now, of course, just because you have grounds doesn't mean you have to. It means an option. You might want to stay and make the marriage work, or you have a right to get out. Because when you commit uh, sexual immorality, you break the marriage. You break it. It's gone. It's over. Now, Jesus said it was not this way from the beginning. So he's going back away from the Mosaic Law Code back to the beginning of either the beginning of Israel or the beginning of time. It's very difficult to discern God's perfect will from a law code. So Jesus went away from the Mosaic Law Code because what do you have in the Mosaic Code? You've got polygamy. You've got slavery. You've got lots of stuff has to be regulated. But in the church, you don't need to regulate polygamy. You don't need to regulate slavery. As the modern 20th century church has shown, we don't have slavery in the church and we don't have polygamy in the church. Now, note that Jesus ended up taking the Shammai school's stance. They said no divorce except for sexual immorality, and that's what Jesus said. Now, if a woman had a Hillel-style divorce granted in the time of Jesus and the man remarried after the so-called divorce, he committed adultery because it wasn't a real divorce, an easy divorce. 
because she burnt the toast to burp too much. He's not really divorced. But now if a Shammai-style divorce was granted, a divorce of sexual immorality, the man was actually divorced because the sexual immorality causes the divorce. So he does not commit adultery when he marries. So in order to understand that problem of divorce and adultery, which is a complicated question, you have to understand the background there. Matthew 19, verse 10, His disciples said to him, If the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. Now, according, apparently the disciples thought that Jesus' strict view of marriage was too strict for them. You mean I can't get a divorce if a wife doesn't please me? Apparently they were thinking like the Pharisees. But their attitude was directly contrary to God's original design for marriage. They were thinking they should, get out, should be able to get out of a marriage if the wife displeases, displeased him. And they are probably thinking, you know, marriage for life is just too hard. It's just too hard to be married to the same woman all your life. Adam Clark says this, There are difficulties and trials in all states, but let marriage and celibacy be weighed fairly, and I am persuaded the former will be found to have fewer than the latter, fewer difficulties and trials than the latter. That's why you don't find many people with the gift of celibacy, although I understand that young men are not marrying these days because of the problems involved, and that, that's a problem. But generally... People want to get married. But these disciples are thinking, ooh, it's better not to marry you being so strict. And by the way, not only is sexual immorality a, a, an exception, Paul the Apostle, under the inspiration and direction of the Holy Spirit, made an exception for a partner who had an unbelieving partner who abandoned him, the desertion of the unbelieving spouse, which is not mentioned here. Matthew 19, verses 11 through 12, But he, Jesus, told them, his disciples, Not everyone can accept this saying, but only those it has been given to. Now, this is going to be a little bit strange, in my opinion, what, how Jesus answered the apostles. Not everyone can accept this saying, but only those it has been given to. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves that way because of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can. Now, I think that what's happening here is that Jesus is thinking about all the difficulties they're going to have being married to a woman given the amount of persecution and death that they're going to face, imprisonment and death, floggings, you know, just terrible lifestyle for someone who wants to set up a family. That's what he's thinking about how difficult marriage is. Apparently, the disciples were saying, in verse 10, the disciples were saying how hard it is to marry just because it's hard to stay in love with somebody that long. But Jesus is not going to agree with that, but he is going to agree with the idea, yeah, it's going to be difficult, all right, for you because of the persecution that's coming. And so then he gives three examples of eunuchs, people who are not married. First example, for there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb because they have a physical defect and they can't have sex. There are eunuchs who were made by men. That's when they're castrated for whatever reason. A man castrates another man. That, that eunuch, therefore, can't have sex and can't get married. And then there are eunuchs who have made themselves that way because of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, there are those who have voluntarily decided not to get married. Why? Because of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, in order to advance the kingdom, you're not going to be able to get married. One more sacrifice that Jesus asked of his apostles, of his disciples. Don't get married. Let anyone accept this who can. Now, he didn't say and make a blanket rule and say it's wrong for you to get married, apostles. But he said that some people make themselves, they voluntarily choose, they make themselves a eunuch, a celibate, because of the kingdom of heaven, because they need to in order to spread the gospel. Now, 
they are the Roman. There's a strain of asceticism in the Roman Catholic Church, and a Catholic interpretation of this could be people have made themselves eunuchs. They've become celibate because of the kingdom of God, and the reason they what that means is they've made themselves celibate in order to be more pure and holy for the sake of the kingdom of God. That is not what Jesus was talking about. You don't become more pure and holy by being single. As a matter of fact, you become more pure and holy by being married because you have to make more sacrifices. You have to conform your will to another creature's will who's living with you. Come on. I mean, you know, to say you'll be more holy because you're single. In fact, I would suggest because you don't have a sexual outlet, there's there's so many temptations for straying from the sexually straight and narrow. What he was saying is you're going to have more leisure to work for the gospel's advance, says John Gill, because you don't have to worry about maintaining your family. And I think that's exactly what Jesus meant. Verse 13 in Matthew 19, Then children were brought to him so he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. Now there's an option on who these children are, either small children, and Adam Clark says the Greek word should be translated as infants. Clark says that this is perhaps a reason that the disciples rebuked the parents because the infants were too small to understand any blessing, and the parents were coming asking for a blessing on their little babies, and that was tying up the apostles' work. Well, I, let's just, John Gill says, no, it's not infants, it's small children, so let's just say it's small children. Let's read one of the parallels, Mark 10, verses 13 through 16. Some people were bringing little children to him so he might touch them, but his disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Don't stop them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I assure you, whoever does not welcome the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. After taking them in his arms, he laid his hands on them and blessed them. Now, Jesus says that You've got to be like a, that, that the kingdom of God belongs to little children. He's using the little children as a metaphor. What's the point of comparison between a citizen in the kingdom of God and a little child? Well, the NIV Study Bible says that children are open and they're receptive. They're helpless. They're without claim or merit. Anything they have has been given to them, and that's just like sinners who enter in the kingdom of God, and that's good. Now, of course, Jesus was not comparing uh, citizens of the kingdom of heaven with children who are noisy, who are unruly, who, are, who aren't important. No, uh, he wasn't doing that. Now, it could be the reason. Why did the, the disciples rebuke these parents bringing the children? Well, it could be because they thought that it was tying up Jesus. He had more important things to do with the adults. And, of course, adults are more important than children which is unfortunately an attitude a lot of adults have. That could be the reason. It could be they were afraid that Jesus would use the children again to rebuke their pride and ambition. Because if you recall in the previous chapter, Matthew 18, this was just after James and John, the son of Zebedee, had, talked, had been involved in an argument with the apostles as who's the greatest in the kingdom of God. And Jesus had said, you need to be like a little child to get the kingdom of God and quit being a big shot, trying to be a big shot. And in Matthew 18, in that passage, verses 2 through 3, Jesus, it, it says this, Then he, Jesus, called a child to him and had him stand among them. I assure you, he said, unless you are converted, unless you are changed, and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So they'd already been rebuked once for their pride, and maybe they didn't want the little children to come there again to remind Jesus to rebuke them again. I think that's a stretch. I don't think that's it. I think they just didn't want to be bothered with them because they were causing trouble. You know, they cry and you got to watch out for them and all that. But it's amazing to me that they would rebuke the children or rebuke the parents of the children. Let's see, who did they rebuke? It says the disciples rebuked them. J 
I assume is the children themselves. That's amazing that the, the disciples would rebuke the children after what Jesus had just said before they had left Capernaum. Matthew 18, verses 2 through 4, Then he called a child to him who had been and had him stand among them. I assure you, he said, unless you are converted and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Is rebuking a child, humbling yourself like the child? They had just been told that, and then here they turn around and rebuke the children. The parents wanted Jesus to lay his hands on them. That was a common Jewish practice of laying hands on when you pray. We, of course, do that today in the church, and it's, it puts it brings a point of contact it provides a point of contact between the one praying and the one receiving the prayer and i think that's a good custom that has been passed down although it's not commanded anywhere matthew 19 verses 14 through 15 then jesus said leave the children alone and don't try to keep them from coming to me because the kingdom of heaven is made up of people like this after putting his hands on them he went on from there putting his hands on them means he prayed for bless them Jesus showed himself to be utterly humble in the circumstance. He wasn't such a big shot Messiah that he couldn't take time for little kids. And we ought, application time, we ought to be the same way. When you go to church, you talk to those kids like you talk to adults. That's why I love home church or small churches where the kids walk around with the adults and you talk to them like their peers and you show interest in their toys and in their games and in their whatever it is they're doing. I just did this yesterday. A little kid came up to me and she says, uh, smell my breath. And she breathed on me. I thought, oh, jeez. She wanted me to know that she had drunk some grape juice and wanted me to smell the grape juice. Well, you could that could be offensive, and that could be I could be doing something more important than that. No, but I listened to her. I let her. I let her breathe on me, and I smelled her breath. Because why? The kingdom of heaven is made up of little kids like that. Children are helpless without claim of merit. They only have what's given to them. Just like the kingdom of God is given to sinners. They are harmless, as John Gill says, they are harmless. They're inoffensive. They're free from malice. They're meek. They're modest. They're humble. They're without ambition. They don't have any desire of grandeur or superiority. They're open and receptive. They have to become teenagers and adults before they start acting like adults. Now, very interesting rabbit trail here. Verse 14, leave the children alone because the kingdom of heaven is made up of people like this. Somehow that verse has become involved in the debate over infant salvation when people die or children's salvation when they die before the so-called age of accountability do they or when little babies die before they're old enough to believe in jesus do they go to heaven or they go to hell well that's a very interesting controversy interestingly armenians and calvinists all agree that infants go straight to heaven i think that the bible is silent on that point and i think the reason people are so quick to assert that that fact that children, that alleged fact that children go straight to heaven when they die is because we have this picture of children as harmless and inoffensive, free from malice, meek, modest, humble, without ambition, not desire of grandeur, having no desire of grandeur or superiority, being open and receptive. That's how we think of kids, especially when they're ours. And there's nothing stronger in this earth, I don't think, as a tie between a parent and a child. I remember one time somebody came to me after a church meeting and asked me what I thought about infant salvation. And right there was somebody who had just lost a child to cancer. And I thought, oh, my gosh, don't ask me. Don't ask me this. But anyway, this has nothing to do with whether children are saved when they die before they accept Christ. It has nothing to do with that. If you're going to get in an argument over that, don't use this verse. He's just trying to use children as an object lesson to, uh, because of their attitudes, which should be like disciples' attitude. 
After Jesus laid his hands on the children and blessed them, he went on from there. From where? Well, he was in prayer on the other side, we think, on the other side of the Jordan River. And he moved on to his next place of ministry. And we will stop right there, take it up. Well, actually, before I do that, let's, let's notice this, that Jesus left that part of Judea, which was beyond the Jordan, where we assume he is right now. Matthew 19, 1, when Jesus, that's the next, that's this chapter we're on here. When Jesus had finished this destruction, he departed from Galilee and went to the region of Judea across the Jordan. So that's where he was. And he went, where did he go on from there? Matthew 20, verses 19 says, as they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. So therefore... We assume that now Jesus is leaving Perea on the eastern side of the Jordan River, crossing over the Jordan, and going up a little bit north of Jer- north and uh, east of Jerusalem, where Jericho was, on the west side of the Jordan River. And so we'll take him up in Jericho next chapter, after we finish Matthew chapter 19, which we'll do in the next audio. Hope you enjoy this audio. 